Today I want to offer an introduction and, a, and an overview to a wonderful epistle uh, that just so happens to follow Galatians and Holy Scripture. It's the epistle to the Ephesians. So we'll dig into a few of the details <clears throat> in a few minutes that will give a taste um, into what is, what's to come in my handling of, of Ephesians over the next few years, because I'm sure that's how long it'll take. Um, and I understand that there's been a few groups here in the church that are already studying Ephesians, so that's, that's great. I've heard that the ladies are going through uh, the study of Ephesians as well as the youth, and so that's great. And, uh, and I hope that this can add to that study and, and it'll really help you to impart that more into your lives as well. So um, Ephesians can best be summarized by the verse found in Ephesians 5.32, which says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So now the immediate context of that verse is Christian marriage. And we will certainly spend a great deal of time looking at what the Holy Spirit says about marriage uh, when we get to chapter 5. But in my reading of Ephesians, Christ and his church holds the key to the entire epistle. And as is common with Paul's writings, Ephesians gives us um, a very solid dose of doctrine first, and then comes back in and adds a lot of applications secondly. So chapters 1 through 3 give us details on who makes up the church and how Christ has worked, as we're told in Ephesians 5.27, to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So while that verse comes from the last three chapters, uh, it's the result of what was laid out in the first three. Chapters 4 through 6 detail how the church ought to behave herself in light of the doctrine presented in the first three. So with that introduction, let's take a 30,000-foot flyover of Ephesians and get an idea for where our journey through the book of Ephesians will take us. The very first doctrine expounded in Ephesians is sometimes seen as controversial in our modern age, but nevertheless, the scripture is plain. And this is the doctrine of the predestination of who the Father chose to be adopted into the family of God. This predestined church makes up the bride of Christ, and Christ Jesus himself uh, secured her salvation. So let's start by reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you haven't turned to Ephesians yet, you might want to do that. We're going to stay primarily within Ephesians this whole uh, sermon this morning. But starting in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. We see here that the decision was made before the foundation of the world. And those who would advocate man's free will in this decision must be asked the same question that God asked Job in Job 38.4. Scripture says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So in Ephesians we're told that this decision was made from the foundation of the earth and none of us were there. Only God was there at the foundation. The members of, of the church, you and I, were chosen long before we ever existed. Uh, God knew us and he decided according to the kind intention of his will to make us a part of that holy bride that Christ would, will receive at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now you've heard, certainly heard it said that the word Trinity is not in the Bible but it is a spiritual truth of our one God in three, in three persons that's on display throughout the Holy Scriptures. In Ephesians, it is no exception. We already read verses 1 through 8. Um, so now we see in verse 3, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And in verse 5, <clears throat> he pre- predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Um, so we see the father and son working together uh, throughout chapter 1. But look at what we read in verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after having listened, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So we see the Holy Spirit sealing us in Christ and giving us, given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. Praise be to God, the three-in-one who has worked within the Godhead to secure us as members of his body for the sole reason of bringing us into his family. And next, you can't talk about the composition of the church without pointing out that she is made up of totally depraved humans. We read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them... We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we weren't generally just a bunch of good people who just needed a little bit of cleaning up in order to enter the kingdom of God. No, we were enemies of God. We read that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, Uh, That is Satan himself. The scripture is essentially saying that we were devil worshipers. Think of the group that wanted to put a statue of Satan on the Capitol grounds a few years back. And it's the same group who recently put that statue in the Ohio uh, Capitol building. Um, That was in response to Christians wanting to display the Ten Commandments. 
And we were rightly repulsed in seeing the statue of, of Satan. Um, but the scripture says that that's who we were. We hated God. And if not that explicitly, then at least very much so implicitly. For even if we weren't so brazen as to erect a statue of Satan, um, verse 3 tells us that we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. And listen to the next part, even as the rest. So the scripture is speaking here of the rest of mankind, those who are not members of the family of God. These are the reprobate, and the scripture says that we were just like them. And the only exception is given in verses 4 through 6. And if you've been reading, I've heard the ladies have been reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has the the famous line, but God. And so verse um, 4 starts out with, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So we clearly see that if our own merits were considered for being part of the family of God, then we would have no hope. It is solely based on the grace of God shown to us according to his own free choice. The Ephesians were Gentiles, and we see Paul contrasting their former state as compared with their current state. Um, In verse 12 we read, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Under the old covenant, God placed his love upon Israel to the exclusion of other people, of other people groups. But under the new covenant, he's broken down that barrier of the dividing wall, um, as we read in verse 14. And it's not that other people groups Uh, could not be saved under the Old Covenant. It was just a more difficult process. Um, There were rules given for proselytes. Uh, Men would have to be circumcised, and then all would have to adhere to the law of God. We see examples of proselytes within the line of Christ. Two examples come to mind. Rahab the harlot and Ruth. These are both referenced in Matthew 1.5 in the lineage of Jesus Christ that I'm sure you've heard read during this Christmas time of year. We could praise God that, that through Christ, salvation is offered to all, both Jews and Gentiles. But that's the only way that salvation was ever offered, even to the Old Testament believers, was believing in that Savior who was to come. And the scriptures that use the language of, of all um, do it in view of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And they're certainly not speaking of every last man, woman, and child who has ever lived in the past or whoever will live in the future. Now, those would make up what's considered the rest spoken of here in Ephesians 2, 3. Now, verses 19 through 22 go on to tell us, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, 
having, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. A foundation is laid once, and those who claim that there are ongoing apostles and prophets do not understand this. The bulk of our Bible was written by the apostles and prophets. Uh, Their words have been preserved forever uh, for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So then the Bible itself has become the only manifestation of apostles and prophets in our modern time. And it is sufficient uh, to tell us all that we need to know concerning God's worship, concerning the gospel, and a host of other topics that God has been pleased to speak to. In chapter 3, we're told how Paul's ministry is primarily directed toward the Gentiles. Um, Starting in verse 6, he says, To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Now, this is somewhat of a repetition from what we saw in chapter 2. It may not stand out to us much here in the 21st century, but this was a huge departure from the way that God had worked with men for centuries. In the Old Covenant, God had placed his love upon Israel, but now Gentiles are freely welcomed into the family of God without jumping through all the hoops of conversion to Judaism. And Paul was the apostle chosen by God to deliver this saving message of hope to the Gentile world. And then, as if to wrap up nicely uh, the section dealing with doctrine, we read a wonderful benediction in verses 20 and 21. And it's interesting to note that this falls right in the middle of Ephesians. So we know uh, that he's turning a corner here. It reads, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, that would be Paul's halfway point through the book of Ephesians in our, in our 30,000 foot flyover. So now as we move into chapter 4, we see Paul transitioning more into more of an application part of Ephesians. He's going to talk on how the church is to behave herself. Uh, right in verses 1 through 3, he admonishes us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. <clears throat> so we are to strive for unity wherever possible. However, unity should not come through the sacrifice of truth. We see Martin Luther, whose maxim was peace if possible, truth at all cost. And we would do well to embrace this view of unity. A unity built on the compromise of the truth is no true unity at all. This is further confirmed by verse 15. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Um, Truth in love is the right priority to address unity. In verses 11 and 12, we're told that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, as we've already discussed in chapter 2, we see that the apostles and prophets were laid as the foundation of the church. So the sum that he gave to be apostles and prophets died a long time ago. But they have left us a treasure in the written word of God, which tells us everything that God would have to say to us. Evangelists share the gospel with those who are lost, and missionaries are certainly evangelists. And it should be their desire when sharing the gospel to, um, to not only convert souls into the kingdom of God, but also to equip the local believers to do the same thing. Oftentimes, these local believers can do it much more effectively um, than a foreign missionary can do it. They know the culture, they know the language, they, they're familiar with the area and, and with the people, and they can reach out and touch uh, people who they come in contact with. Um, and then lastly, pastors and teachers expound the scriptures and, give, and teach the church, again, for the work of service. The ESV says it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, a good teacher should always have as his goal uh, to equip those he is teaching to be able to, to teach others. And in so doing, this builds up the body of Christ. In verse 17, we read something very interesting. Paul says, Now I say, I'm sorry, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And I realize I switched over to the ESV in my notes. But uh, it says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So um, it's interesting because we've already established that the Ephesians are Gentiles. And Paul went to great lengths talking about how he was, that the wall of separation was being broken down, this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, in offering the gospel freely to all. And so what's he doing here telling them to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, when the Ephesians themselves are Gentiles? Well, I believe it's because the church... Um, is the true Israel of God, as was referenced in the Galatians study on Galatians 6.16. And if you remember there, it reads, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That would need a lot further context in order to flesh out, but we've visited that already. But basically, the Israel of God being the church now. And so, when we come back to um, Ephesians. Um, we've been personally invited into the kingdom of God by the Lord himself. We find our true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is part of the true Israel for which Christ died. Therefore, it can be said that we are not to behave ourselves as the Gentiles do. Think of this as similar to when the scripture says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we necessarily came out of the world, but we are no longer part of the world. 
And the same can be said of Gentiles. We are, according to Galatians 3.28, children of promise. Um, In verse 26, we're given an admonition that I've often pondered. And here's the verse. It reads, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Each of us knows that it's easy to be sinful in anger. Uh, Sinful anger has been the cause of sinful actions, sometimes even culminating in murder. So we may ask what is meant when the scripture says that we are to be angry and yet do not sin. I tend to take this as a righteous anger um, against or toward those who would blaspheme the word of God. It could also be a righteous anger against our own sin, our own personal sin. And whatever the type of anger that it's speaking of, um, it it's most certainly should fit into a category such as this. I think of the story of King Jehu in 2 Kings 10, who was angry at the Baal worship that was going on in the house of Israel. So, we start reading in uh, verse 18. Then Jehu gathered up, gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it cunning, did it in cunning, so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to to the other. He said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out garments for them. Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed for himself eighty men outside. And he had said, The one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. Then it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, Go in, kill them, let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. They brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Now here we definitely see a righteous anger uh, whereby Jehu um, cleansed Israel of the idolatry that was taking place among God's people. So this interpretation calls in the question the second half of Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Um, So I've often heard this part of the verse used to tell married couples um, not to go to sleep until they've resolved any conflicts from the day. 
Now, that may be very good marital advice, but I don't think that's what the Scripture's talking about here in this verse. Um, when you consider what we just read about being angry, but yet do not sin. If we're not sinning in our anger, then why would it be important to stop before the sun goes down? I think a better interpretation of it is this. Not letting the sun go down is a euphemism for not stopping righteous anger um, ever at all. It's easy for us to get complacent. Ahab, along with his evil wife Jezebel, reigned in Israel prior to Jehu. Ahab was complacent. He knew the scripture. Every king of Israel had to hand copy the scriptures for himself. But he listened to his pagan wife he had married rather than God. And there are many more admonitions, admonishments given in in chapter 4 for how we as the church ought to behave ourselves. We'll, of course, look at these in more in depth when we get to that point in the series. But for now, let me encourage you to go back and read all of Ephesians 4 and really all of Ephesians altogether. Uh, It will be a blessing, and it's actually quite a short epistle, and it's a really good read to read it from cover to cover. Chapter 5 starts off with this phenomenal verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, this is not the only place that we are told to imitate God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that's the key verse for our International Fire Conference this year that will be hosted here at Northwest Bible Church. But going back to Ephesians 5.1, let's look at how he gives the admonishment here in this passage. He says we should imitate God as beloved children. Now, any of you who are parents know that just how true this is. Our children imitate us for good or for bad, and that's how they learn. It's particularly true with our speech. A baby learns to talk by listening to his mother and father and copying what he hears them say. And maybe this is why Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. If we are truly imitating God, then there will be none of the impure speech coming from our mouths. While we as earthly parents may give, us, give some good and some bad examples of our, for our children to imitate, our loving Father only gives us a perfect example for us to imitate 100% of the time. <clears throat> His character is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures so that we may know Him more fully and seek to imitate him in every facet of our lives. Verses 7 and 8 read, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. As we talked about back in chapter 2, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been changed. We have been transformed, so we should no longer do the things that we did before. We should no longer speak the way that we spoke before. We should no longer even think the way that we used to. We've been brought into the kingdom of God, but even when we do fail and we fall back into these old patterns, uh, it should always be our desire to live lives that are pleasing to God, and he should 
Grant us that repentance to come and confess our sins and be forgiven again. And when we imitate him, then we are pleasing God. According to Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And the way that we learn what is pleasing to the Lord is through reading his holy word. He's told us what is pleasing to, to him there in the pages of Holy Scripture. We're told in verse 18 not to get drunk with wine. Uh, it's interesting that the sentence continues on into verse 19 and it reads this way. And do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So now whatever your view on alcohol is, we should all agree that the scripture is clear and gives no license whatsoever for Christian believers to be drunk. And while the scripture specifies wine here, it's no stretch to say that this would apply to any type of mind-altering substance of which there are many types in this current age that we live in. But the point of all this, however, is not that we don't is that we don't derive our merriment the same way that the world does. Um, they they enjoy going out to the drinking parties and to try to get into um, alter their minds with using all these substances. Christians, we are not to be this way, but rather we should warm our hearts to simply spending time with one another and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs one to another, worshiping our Lord together. And that should bring the most joy to our hearts. And, um, and it, it's true for the body of Christ. And it, it is such a blessing to be able to come and, and sing and, and fellowship one with another. Moving along down to verses 22 and through 25, we find the most relevant instruction given to married couples in the church. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the, sub, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now in our modern feminist culture, these words without any exposition whatsoever are enough to get you branded as some sort of male chauvinist bigot. Um, but this is what the scripture says. I even read a marriage book this year by a supposed reformed author who wrote, Although Paul calls wives to submission in every area, a wise husband should learn quickly how seldom he should ask for submission in every area, explicitly or even implicitly. Now, admittedly, I haven't given you all the context surrounding that passage, but I did read it in its entirety when I read it for myself. And it sure sounds to me like the author is arguing with the divine inspiration of Scripture given by the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't qualify his words and in verse 24, he goes on to say, um, yeah, he, in verse 24, he just says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives are to be to their, uh, to their husbands in everything. And then verse 25 moves on into the duties of husbands without diluting what he had just said. But it's a tall order given to husbands as well. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands 
ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now, that for the husbands in the room, that's a, really an impossible task to, to embrace. But yet, that's, we are called to love our wives even as Christ has loved the church. If you want to read a good marriage book that faithfully expounds this section of Scripture, I'd recommend simply avoiding anything written in the 20th or the 21st centuries. That's my personal opinion. Uh, the best marriage book, bar none, that I have found is written by a Puritan, uh, William Gouge. Um, the Puritans didn't care what people thought about them, and they weren't publishing books uh, you know, simply to sell books. They published what they wrote because they cared about the body of Christ, and they wanted to give it the best instruction that they could. And this is what the Lord has called them to do as shepherds. Gouge's original title for his book was called Domestical Duties. However, in 2013, Scott Brown and Joel Beakey republished this massive book into three separate manageable volumes. They updated the language and removed the sections dealing with the treatment of servants, since that's not really relevant to our society. <clears throat> they titled the series, Building a Godly Home. Volume 1 is titled, A Holy Vision for Family Life. Volume 2 is A Holy Vision for a Happy Marriage. And Volume 3 is A Holy Vision for Raising Children. I try to keep these volumes available on our book rack out in the foyer as best as I can, although they are getting a little bit harder to find for some reason. A gouge keeps the bar set high for both husbands and wives because this is precisely what the scripture teaches. And Lord willing, we'll dive into this section of Ephesians more deeply when we make our way into chapter 5 in the future. Now starting in chapter 6, we see gouge's text for his final book in the series when he's talking to the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The apostle doesn't spend much time, much more time on this instruction uh, beyond pointing us to the fifth commandment. The apostle Paul continues in telling slaves to be obedient to their masters. And I'm sure this is what Gouge used as his text and domestical duties that it was edited out. But we could still find some valuable information here in the scriptures on how we can relate to our earthly bosses as we go to our jobs. For even though we are paid for our labor, we still submit ourselves to their authority and whenever we're being paid by them. And we should do these duties as unto the Lord and not simply just for our employers. Which is the same thing that we read now in, in verse 7. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. So when you go to your jobs, work as hard as you can, but don't do it just to impress the boss. Do it to impress your Lord because that's who is really your provider. He's given you your job. He's given you your, the, all of your income. Paul ends his epistle with a discourse on the full armor of God. And I want to um, read you this beautiful passage from verses 10 through 20. You can follow along if you'd like. It's um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the 
full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now this section here is a huge piece of spiritual food. And much has been written about the armor of God. And the work that I would recommend is 600 pages um, written by another Puritan, William Gurnall. Um, And I will admit that I haven't read the entire thing yet, but the parts that I have read have been very good, um, been excellent. Um, And other trustworthy theologians have recommended Gurnall as well. So we'll cover this section on the armor of God um, eventually when we get to chapter 6. But obviously, I'm not going to cover it as well as Gurnall did. So if you really want to be edified, get yourself a copy of that book and and, um, dig into that. It'll... It'll um, very well build you up and, and give you that strength and comfort of knowing, of, of arming yourself with the armor of God. So in conclusion, I hope that I've given you a glimpse into the treasure that the Holy Spirit has given us in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. It's solid doctrine followed by solid application. And it's all to the glory of God and to the edification of his church. And I look forward as God allows to studying this epistle and bringing it to you one piece at a time uh, over the next few years or however long it takes me to to expound the the epistle. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the epistle to the Ephesians. Lord, I pray that as we take the time to study through it, pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. Lord, that you would minister to your people, that you would edify your church. Lord, and even as that second half of Ephesians follows the first half and all the application, there's a lot of commands of, of do this, do that. All of these things are in light of the salvation that you've already won for us in Christ. We do none of these things in order to, order to earn our salvation, to make you love us anymore, or any of that. It's all simply as a response of that we are your church. We are your bride. We submit ourselves to you. So Lord, we do thank you for the, the solid doctrine in those first three chapters and then for the instruction that you've given in the last three. Pray, Lord, that you would apply this to our lives and um, be with us as we go forth from this place. And pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.